Hey everybody, Jason Burmis here, and I'm very, very excited about tonight's broadcast. It has actually been over a year and a half since this gentleman and I did a broadcast together, and I actually just spent the last couple hours reviewing our first interview together as this kind of COVID-1984 nightmare unraveled. I got to tell you, I watched only half an hour. I'd encourage everybody to do the same. It's aged extremely well, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, you know, uh, some of the highlights of that, James and I were talking about supply chain issues, issues we're still having now, scarcity issues. Uh, one of my stark warnings was to get your families out of the nursing homes. Um, no matter what you think happened, people were devastated in those nursing homes. Uh, we're looking at that now. That's an interview from March 20th of 2020, when the world, again, was a very different place. And then we did another broadcast, again, about 18 months ago. We were talking about the numbers. And it almost feels like now it's deja vu with instead of infections and deaths and with and of COVID, we're going through the same kind of system with natural immunity, Shot one, shot two, booster three, and booster four. So I thought it's been long overdue. Everybody knows him from CorbettReport.com, one of the essential websites for anybody who's trying to sift through the misinformation, disinformation, narratives, and talking points. James Corbett, I'm so happy to see you, my friend. I am happy to see you too. It has been far too long, hasn't it? And uh, I hope... Your audience knows me from CorbettReport.com, but I know that there are a lot of people who knew me from YouTube. And, hey, James, you went away somewhere. I don't know where you are these days. I, I, I'm over here. I've always been over here. You can always get me at my website. So for any of your viewers who don't know that, I'm still at CorbettReport.com. And thank goodness for that, sir, because here we are in a real world of vaccine passports of digital narrative management on a level that goes well beyond 9-11 truth, which we witnessed firsthand when fact, chunker, fact checkers were in fact debunkers, right? And it was, it was almost like a semantical move. And the Arabs were still the main terrorists. And now outwardly, as we also discuss um, in that first 30-minute interview and we talk about some of the drills, they've now openly said the terrorists are the American people and somehow domestic terrorism and white supremacy is numero uno. They've moved the Justice Department against soccer moms uh, standing up for their kids' education. I mean, this is all a reality and one that you've impressed upon your viewers through not only your podcast but your amazing documentary series. So, so what's it been like? you know, over these last, I guess now two years, watching this evolution come into play? Uh, surreal in every possible way. Um, I mean, just at the personal level, there's the profound disconnect between what I'm hearing and seeing from so many different parts of the world and what is taking place in real life right outside my door here in Japan, where as your viewers may or may not know, Japan has never had a, a real lockdown of any significance. They have quasi-states of emergency, which essentially means that they ask uh, eateries and pubs and things like that to close after 8 p.m. Um, but it is actually just asking uh, until, I believe, 
about a year ago, they passed some legislation that allowed the prefectural governors to actually uh, fine businesses that don't comply. Before that point, they didn't even have that on the books. And uh, the last I heard, there was at least one restaurant chain that was um, uh, fighting that in the courts. So um, there hasn't been a significant, we haven't, we don't have vaccine mandates or QR code passes to enter places or any of the stuff that I see unfolding around the world. So it's, it's ex exceptionally bizarre for me to watch what is happening in so many places, including, of course, my home and native land of Canada that seems to be in a competition with Australia and New Zealand and some of the other Commonwealth states for who can be the most draconian in COVID-1984. Having said that, unfortunately, unfortunately, our conversation from a year two, how two, long ago? So 2020, March, March 20, two March, years ago. Oh, it's 22 months. It's twenty, a little over 22, 22 months, months ago. Yes. I mean, we were literally just in that first phase where Europe was obviously having a burst and New York was now announcing some of the mandates. And obviously I was worried yeah. about the city and the movement yeah. of the military everywhere. Uh, but at the same time, most of this country wasn't under any of that. And you discussed again, when I looked out my door, everything seems pretty normal right now. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. it does. <laughs> That's the weird part. So, so talk about that because there are no mandates there. But I've heard you discuss several times there almost doesn't need to be because of the mm -hmm. way that society treats their government. Now, yeah. there's been reports, at least, you know, a lot of alternative media reports that ivermectin is also being used in Japan. You're there. You see the media push. First of all, what is it like to live in that society right now? I mean, is it is it still just bizarro world because everybody is living in fear or just going along to get along and you can't get a read on it? And then two, are they really offering solutions outside of the vaccines or the vaccines are just suggested and accepted so they're rolling with it? You know, it's actually almost an opposite dynamic here. Um, there is at least guidance on the English part of the Japanese government uh, website that specifically is warning against any form of discrimination against people who don't, who are un uninjected. Um, they are also... Uh, there, there was recently a story that went through the news wires here that the government was asking businesses not to pressure their workers into getting injected. Um, what does that mean? Uh, it's a good question. In some ways, that might just be a face-saving thing because they know that most businesses here are going to not mandate it for their workers, but ask them to do so. And in Japan, that's as good as a mandate, because as I say, people will generally go along with it. And if the government numbers are to be believed, then Japan is over 80% fully injected by the standards of a couple months ago anyway, back when it was two shots to be fully injected. But then now again, the boosters... what wasn't it fully vaccinated? Now for us, it's fully vaccinated, but at the same time, they've changed the language now officially. Uh -huh. They prepped you for it about a month ago where they were trying to reassure the public that it was still going to remain fully vaccinated. Um, but then Fauci let you know that they were probably going to start using the terminology up to date, uh, softening the blow for the same thing the CDC director revealed today, that up to date now means your booster and we're not going to be using the terminology fully vaccinated anymore. It shows you the movement, the Bernaysian movement of two weeks to slow the spread. We're all in this together safe and effective and now you know we're getting ready for shot number four in the west yep 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Even though Israel is already saying, well, four is doing nothing. So well, let's, let's get ready for five, right? Is that is that where we're going? Um, ridiculous. And how do you convince people to take the first one when they're already saying, well, you know, the third one doesn't seem that effective? It's ridiculous. It's all ridiculous. It's uh, in, to some extent, you're right. It's more about the narrative itself and the progression of that narrative, almost like this is some sort of prepared script that has been laid out as to how to lead people into something that they would never otherwise do so. You don't tell them to take that giant leap all at once. Just a little step here, little step there, little step here, and suddenly they're exactly where you wanted them to be in the first place. You know, I'm so glad that you kind of brought up that predictive programming motif and that progression motif because I have this video queued up and we were able to connect through Meet, so you're going to be able to hear it. I'm pretty excited about that. This was from ABC News uh, all the way back in 2009. It wasn't a report. It was a mockumentary and a project brought to you by John Podesta, James Woolsey, Eric Schmidt, Anthony Fauci, and Van Jones, among others. And it was called Earth 2100. And I had covered it back when I was at InfoWars. The uh, website still exists, and you can actually still find it in full on YouTube. I assure you, you need to watch the entire thing. But in, in the first 10 seconds of this, it's the progression of a girl who's born in 2009 and as the progression goes the world gets worse because of climate change and her and her family are forced to move to different locations which are smaller and more disruptive however they integrate news footage and documentary style footage and effects throughout to make it more realistic with the cartoon feel so the opening scene james of this in 2009 is this. Oh, and of course it doesn't wanna. <laughs> in my life, I've seen New York City under full quarantine. The Midwest overrun, devastated by pests. Plague sweep across California. And again, so like in the, again, the first really five seconds, New York City under full quarantine. We already won't know what we're gonna do with the plague. Uh, the blue masks are there. In fact, they're featured just a second before with their little special effect. So to trust the science would to say that these people didn't have this already planned out and wargamed in front of you, knowing that they would mask society, knowing in this that they would put in refugee camps, knowing that climate change would destroy us all. And that's when we get into this narrative of the movement of all of this from a virus and a passport for that and your vaccination records, but to really not only a social credit score, but one based on the environment and you basically having your entire life regulated by your carbon. Yes, yes, exactly right. No, so this is why you and I are able to have that conversation 22 months ago and to be able to see so much of what was coming, not because we are my, you know, amazing psychics, but because this is part of a narrative progression, and once you understand what the end of that story is meant to look like, then you see all the steps along the way and where this is going to go. It is not rocket science, it's narrative science. So you showed uh, the homepage of CorbettReport.com there uh, briefly. If you refresh that, just moments before we, we connected, I posted the latest article up to the front page, what Hitchcock taught 
the social engineers. Now, this full credit for this goes to uh, David Knight, who uh, featured this on his show recently. There's a clip of uh, Alfred Hitchcock on the Dick Cavett show from the 70s. And Cavett is asking him about uh, a narrative device that Hitchcock often employed in his, his movies, the MacGuffin. What is a MacGuffin? And so Alfred Hitchcock describes, well, this is something that's often used in spy fiction. And it's it can be the plans for the Ford on the Khyber Pass or the plans for a new form of nuclear weapon or whatever you like, it doesn't matter. It's the thing that motivates everyone on the screen so that the audience understands, oh, okay, they're after that thing, that whatever it is, the MacGuffin. And uh, there's a humorous little story about where the name MacGuffin comes from that I'll let you watch if you want to get that. But so I think that is actually an incredibly important part of the narratives that we are fed. Uh, the only difference, the only stipulation I would make is that Hitchcock says that the, the the actual nature, the actual identification of the MacGuffin doesn't matter. And in the sense of a movie, it sometimes really doesn't matter. I mean, watch a movie like, I think it was North by Northwest. I, I, I can't remember which one. It might have been North by Northwest. One of them, it was just like, they they just mention it. It's it's these secret plans or something. And then that's all they ever say about it. They never explain what they are. It doesn't matter. You just know that, oh, he's... He's trying to protect these secret plans and he's got to, you know, they're chasing him. That, that's all you need. On the world stage, uh, to a certain extent, it is that. It's, okay, uh, terrorist boogeymen are going to get you. Uh, a virus is going to get you. Uh, whatever. Uh, climate change is going to get you. To a certain extent, it is like that. But the different narrative MacGuffins that they can employ have different aspects to them that enable them to enact certain parts of the agenda. So, I mean, for for example, um, there has been scientific study of parasite stress theory that shows that people who feel that they are privy to or uh, subject to some sort of pathogen, there's some sort of germ spreading, will be more susceptible to all forms of infringement on their basic liberties. This is This is a psychologically established and known fact. With that being an established and known scientific fact that people who feel, feel uh, scared of transmissible pathogens will allow greater abrogations of their freedom. If you want to find ways to make inroads against people's freedom, why wouldn't you employ that as your narrative tool? So I always come back to this from the bigger calculation um, of, the, of the narrative MacGuffin that's being employed. It doesn't matter. It does matter, of course. But in from the narrative perspective, it doesn't matter if this was a bioweapon or if this is natural or if this doesn't exist at all or anything along those lines. They take that narrative and feed that into the media cycle to get people ginned up about it so that they can introduce all of the pieces of the puzzle that they're going to need for the next stage. And we already saw this coming. The health passes, the QR codes, the vaccine mandates are just bricks in this edifice that they're constructing. And we know what that edifice is going to look like. So when we see them coming out with the individual bricks, we go, yeah, and that one's going to slot in there and that one's going to slot in there. And then they have the central bank digital currencies and the cashless payment system. And uh, then there's the social credit score that's going to go into your health and it's going to be a government issued ID and it's going to be all on your phone. Again, we're not psychic. We just know the story. We know the bigger story that they're going to be telling us. 
Well, we know the story through their white papers, their blueprints, their admissions on film that you've so well documented really over the past uh, decade plus and done more than an admirable job at that. But in that narrative control right now, we have the great reset and now the follow up with Davos talking about literally the great narrative in which uh, me and Derek Bros had a discussion. But I really wanted to highlight this because I feel like there's never been a time in history that we could be living through this more. Other ideas were always entertained and our society at least about a decade ago still maintained that no matter how grotesque speech was, you would at least be able to get it out there and hear it. And in the second to last Bilderberg meeting that we know of, I don't know whether they met last year. I don't know if they're meeting digitally. I don't know if Davos is their new public forum. Maybe they'll meet this year. In 2018, they focused not only on the post-truth world, which we're going to focus on here, but quantum computing and artificial intelligence. <laughs> Just so, And the future of work, which is also there. The future of work, all these things that we've been warning you about. And again, you go watch... James and I, in August of uh, 2020, the last interview we did in that chunk, uh, I in the last 10 minutes, it gets into transhumanism. And I just said, you know, this really has a transhumanist feel. And when they talk about, you know, the discretion of this organization and the post-truth world, they basically say that, you know, misinformation is now out of control. And that's what you're hearing now. And you see fact checkers with absurdities on the daily, whether it's in your Twitter feed or your Facebook feed or any mainline media feed. If you're going to a mainline news site, those same things are in the fact. Sometimes they just outright say fact checkers, right? <laughs> now, like that's a proud thing. Oh, fact checkers are sure. Now that we're immersed in the post-truth world, on the largest platforms in the world that don't have to turn a profit, because YouTube doesn't turn a profit, everybody. I want to make that extremely clear. They are not a business. That is a absolute farce. They are a Trojan horse civilian system. And I use that terminology because it is literally in their own NASA documents. I'm going to type it in. Um, where they say that's very inexpensive. In the long run, they have black budgets. They don't have to turn a profit. They're buying everybody because information, internet, psychological warfare is very cheap inside the United States. Um, something else big in this, you know, when we talk about CNN syndrome, and this is a pre-2001 document, they say capture and torture Americans in living color on prime time. Terror attacks within the continental United States. Binary, biological critical infrastructure takeover uh, takedowns, and then serious psychological warfare, a.k.a. collateral damage exploitation. If that is not literally the progression of the war on terror, 9-11 into what we're seeing now and the ever-hyped what? Cyber attacks. I don't know what is, James. And just to further hammer home Google and NASA's relationship, they partnered with one another in 2005, that is, Eric Schmidt shaking hands, and by 2019, right after that Bilderberg meeting, we discussed they achieved with NASA quantum supremacy, which is AI supremacy as well. James, talk about that because so many people will tell you this is a private company. They're allowed to censor. These mandates of vaccines, now they've been shut down by the uh, Supreme Court, even though the health 
care thing is travesty. What are they pushing? Well, don't worry, private businesses. We, we expect the private sector to institute those mandates, which are legal. Talk about not only the merging of this techno-fascist state through large corporations, but how they are just an extension of the military-industrial complex that was born classified after World War II. Absolutely right. Yes, it's not just that these these companies have somehow managed to integrate or merge with the government. No, they were always essentially exactly what was stated there, Trojan horse civilian systems. Um, and people who want the elaboration on that can go back to episode 359 of my podcast, The Secrets of Silicon Valley, What Big Tech Doesn't Want You to Know, where I lay out exactly what you're referring to there, the post-World War II development of the entire microchip industry and everything that grew out of that in Silicon Valley, deliberately seeded by American military intelligence, and that was then fostered and funded by... Um, for example, Incutel, the CIA's venture capital arm, amongst others. I mean, there's the, the it's not it's not just some sort of takeover that happened of some spontaneous thing that was happening. It was deliberately planted from the beginning. Um, people like uh, Yasha Levine have written about that. Uh, uh, Surveillance Valley was the name of his book. Uh, incredibly important and documented history there that this is not just some sort of um, happenstance. This was actually deliberately planted. Now, having said that. Again, you and I wouldn't be talking. We wouldn't even know each other if this technology didn't exist. So there has been this incredible flowering of communication that was enabled via this technology. And the cynics will say, well, yeah, of course, they need to draw you into the net. They got to get, you know, honey, you catch more bears with honey than whatever that phrase goes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, look at it this <laughs> way. I, I, don't, I don't dismiss that, but just like... You know, a, a hammer builds a house, bashes a head. A gun can take a life. A gun can save a life. No matter what technology you put out there, even if it were for the most nefarious of purposes, is going to be able to be utilized in a manner that can also empower humanity. Technology itself right, right. is benign. Exactly right. It's about the conscious intention and the ability to to have at the very least the freedom to do what we want with the technology, which of course is also going to be taken away piece by piece. And I've talked about this for years. It was something that James M. Pilato cited on his podcast that I picked up on. They don't want you to have computing devices like we have now. They want you to have digital vending machines. You just push buttons and something will be delivered to you by a drone as long as you have you know the right social credit score to get to be able to purchase whatever you're purchasing. That's what the vision of computing technology in the future is. Um, and right now we have the relative luxury of having these devices that we can we can use, we can manipulate, we can change, we can do things with them. That is going to be taken away piece by piece and eventually it'll just be wearables and hearables and virtual reality goggles so we can strap into the metaverse. So um, it, it, yes, absolutely. The technology can be used, but the real fight is not is not really, I understand the fight of, okay, well, we need YouTube to be, you know, we need them to allow everyone on YouTube and allow everyone on Facebook. But to a certain extent, that's, in the bigger picture, that's the wrong fight. The right fight is we need to have the ability to create our own systems. And if we have that ability and we consciously use that for what it's worth, then I think we have a fighting chance at this. If we were actively exploring genuine peer-to-peer -peer technologies to genuinely go around the middlemen so that it does not matter, I do not care what YouTube does because I'm over here. And I think, I believe that people 
Yes, of course. Uh, the difference of the last 20 years in the World Wide Web has been that now everyone, including your your grandma and everyone else you know, is now on Facebook and whatever, and they all use the, the World Wide Web, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, as opposed to 20 years ago, where it was more of a niche thing. Um, but uh, with that has become an incredible, it's not just a dumbing down, it's just a, I don't even know how to describe it. Back 20, 25 years ago, 25 years ago when I was first getting online, 27 years ago or whatever it was, it was fun. It was exciting. It was a weird place where everyone had their own unique little website with all the flashing whiz-bang, like spinning logos and stuff that was just, it was crazy. But that was exciting. And there was always stuff to discover. And now it's just this bland corporate homogenization. Everything looks the same. It's all one feed that you just scroll through and it's just horrible and it just makes you angry and uncomfortable. I think that spirit of the, hey, this is unique and weird and individual and lots of weird stuff is happening. That spirit could take place somewhere else on some other system, IPFS or something else that is not this bland, corporate, homogenized, increasingly controlled, censored, and surveilled World Wide Web. That's the spirit we need to tap into if we really want to find a a different narrative uh, by which we can paint the future and where this technology is going at all. Well, I hope that we can do that. Uh, At the same time, um, because of the culture that has been created, and it's not only just the, you know, I don't like to use the term dumbing down, right? Because that's too easy uh, to kind of just like swoop it under the rug. I think you look at the attention spans of people. I also think that you look at somebody 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, you get to around 2010 to 2015, I'd say it picked up. But how many times did you really look at yourself in the mirror and not only look at yourself in the mirror, but take a picture of yourself and then decide whether you're going to share that with the world? And, you know, is that healthy to do 25 to 100 times a day and pick three of those? And then all of a sudden you're also immersed in this feed that's constantly a one-upping, right? You know, and it's, you know, I'm missing out here. Is this person better than me? Is this person prettier than me? Do they have more? And it's in bits and pieces. And I think it also feeds to the most base desires, unfortunately, those seven deadly sins, right? Whether it be uh, vanity or greed, just nothing good. And what's the big goal? In, in society with, you know, millennials and even young people to be one of those people that just makes money because they're on that little square device to be the Jake Pauls of the world. And unfortunately, uh, you know, you talked about narrative management and you talked about uh, Hitchcock. We talk about post-World War II. I think it's really important, especially because uh, Annie Jacobson highlights it in her book that they utilized what they found out from H.G. Wells' broadcast of mass hysteria. And now there's a big talk of mass formation psychosis. But essentially, DARPA and the Defense Department were extremely interested in the societal effects of just one radio broadcast and started to see how important propaganda was to use masses of people. <laughs> and exactly. And now we're set up in a situation where we're talking about we're going to Mars we're going to moon and we're doing it with a big hero, Elon Musk. And all these narratives, whether we realize them or not, have kind of been set up without the type of like, I would say evidence um, that these things are benefiting man or even happening marginally in the way they say they are. And with 
NASA saying, you know, we're hiring theologians to get ready to disclose what would happen if aliens were alive. And the biggest movie out there is about an asteroid hitting the Earth. It, it seems like all these sudden devastating cataclysms that we've been primed for over the next 30 years are somehow being created into fruition. And I would argue to watch out because it was people like Carl Rove who are still on Fox News every night telling you they create reality. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, so people who don't remember that, please uh, go back and look up that quote where Carl uh, Rove was talking about, we're an empire and we act in the way empires do. While you are st sitting there st uh, judiciously studying what we do, we'll go out and create new realities. Um, an incredibly revealing quote, and I'm holding uh, The Invasion from Mars uh, by Hadley Cantrell, which was the result, the Rockefeller-sponsored uh, result of that radio broadcast you're talking about, Orson Welles' broadcast, a 1938 Halloween broadcast of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, which famously caused some people to believe there was an actual invasion from Mars taking place. And there's more to that story, obviously, and um, people will point out, well, so the, the reaction has been overhyped and blah, blah, blah. But there was a reaction, and we know that actually because the uh, Princeton Radio Project was immediately on the scene and immediately started interviewing people literally the next day um, for a, a project which resulted in this book. And this book is talking about well, what does this mean and how can people be manipulated by a, a, a medium like radio? And, and ostensibly, the point of the, the research is to show, well, how can people arm themselves against it? And they were trying to point out things like, well, people who try to triangulate the data, who, you know, turn to a different radio station to see, you know, what else can I find out about what's going on would immediately realize, oh, it's not, you know, it was just a radio broadcast. It's not real. Um, so they were trying to point out things like that. Anyway, there's a lot more to that story, which I do go into in my recent online course on the history of mass media that I did for Renegade University. I'll be doing more work on that. It's extremely important precisely because it's exactly in line with what we're talking about. Yes, media uh, is not just some passive popcorn form of entertainment. It literally shapes and the way that we perceive and understand the world and thus how we act in that world. And there are people who have been talking about and thinking about and documenting and studying and funding studying of exactly this type of control for at least a century now. Can you imagine how much more detailed and refined and sophisticated it is now than it was when a young up-and-coming Orson Welles thought, oh, I'll make a name for myself by pretending there's an invasion going on. You know, I mean, it's it's a lot more subtle, a lot more complex, and unfortunately, I think a lot more effective now as evidence of, for which I will just point to the last two years. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people have been hammering on me a little bit because I continue to go back to this NASA document because I don't know how much you've seen it, but it is just a spot-on rollout of everything that is not only going on because this was put on by Dennis Bushnell, who's still the chief scientist of NASA and been around since the Apollo days and was heading up the Jason group and is on video talking about, I have him talking about how space exploration is 20% of what NASA does. In 2010, I have him talking about how they'll institute population control that changes everything. That sustainability is really a code word for the fact that westernized living will continue to decline as the eastern uh, block comes up. To say that 10,000 people had already put 
brain chips in their bodies via these Defense Department programs. Well, here's where the spooky part gets spookier, James. And this is why we got to mobilize, because they're not behind on their little plan. So this is what they put down for the technological ages of humankind and that the bio-nano era would enter in 2020. Well, no matter what shot you got, if it was the shots they said it was, it was either vector-based or mRNA, which is literally bio-nanotechnology. Now, if you see, there's a question mark because they don't know how long this is going to last because humanity still has a soul and we fight back and there is technology and the things that James and I talk about. But you notice the next age is literally virtual. Now, in a document put out pre-9-11, it actually predicted pretty much the tele- everything that you're seeing now, shopping, entertainment, travel, education, medicine, which is being pushed more than ever, politics, where you don't have to show up to congressional or state boards anymore, and of course, socialization being one of the major ones. This talks about putting biological binaries into into foods. It talks about uh, automation and robotization, and now that is becoming more and more mainstream. It's not just a fringe presidential candidate talking about automation. What is your take on the future rollout right now? You you hinted at the metaverse. You said they wanted us in the goggles, but the impact of these technologies coming home into the workplace, aka the automation and then the use of that AI and robotics, not only in that work area, but in places like hospitals and otherwise, because you have Grace, which is Sophia's cousin, already being utilized in Australia for COVID. And it had actually been primed over a decade earlier in Japan in some of the nursing homes. This is why I say that the the unlike Hitchcock, I think the nature of the MacGuffin does matter because different MacGuffins bring with them different sets of proposed solutions or ways forward or just different connotations. And one of the things about the idea of a spreading transmissible viral pathogen is that icky biological human nature itself becomes demonized and we as well what's the only solution to this we need to find ways to reduce our actual physical contact with other human beings it is the perfect framing narrative device for the transition through the nanobio age into the virtual age it could not be any more blatant than that and that is exactly what i've been seeing without knowing about that existence of that nasa document so thank you for bringing that to my attention you mean like the, the genomic design personal. or repair of the human species <laughs> yep. i mean they also t- yeah. in, in fact in that same speech from the blue tech forum that i was just discussing he talks about literally engineering a species that is smaller so they take up less resources. And it is through that scarcity MacGuffin, if you will, James, mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> that mm-hmm. they constantly instill this fear that we need to change. You know, again, you look at this part of the document, what's right up there at the front? Global warming, pollution, deforestation. It doesn't matter that Bill Gates now tells you we can't plant trees anymore because the soil is just too bad. We better, We just better give up. And you talk about mind children. Well, yes, they're talking about what? That merging of human beings with devices physically that can no longer just be 
turned off or taken away. I'm here to impair, empower uh, human beings too. Like I understand why you might have a hearing aid that's wired into your head right now because that's the best technology. But when it's no longer a hearing aid and it's a commercial device pushed by Elon Musk, a front for DARPA, we can get to that in a moment, um, basically telling you you're going to be able to learn languages and you're going to hear music in your head and this robot kiosk is going to do it. That's the private sector coming in, not only normalizing it and enabling it, but literally putting it out there as the next step, praising it as the not only the new evolution of what our species will be beyond religion and all these fake promises and lies and fables we've been told our whole lives. Correct? Absolutely. Yes. No. Uh, so important. This, this really is the long-term agenda, and it's one that I have tried to point to for a number of years, but certainly over the past couple of years, I've pointed to it many times that really I see that the end of this tunnel that we're living through right now, known as COVID-19, is the transhuman agenda. And that's been pushed sometimes quite overtly. I talked a, a year and a half ago or something like that about a, a, a article that was being published, I believe in Forbes at that time, the uh, looking forward to the end of humanity. Uh, there's, there's a number of things that have been put out along those lines, but this is really where it's going. And I had a podcast last year on designing humans for fun and profit that I think gets towards that genomic targeting of pathogens into genomic <laughs> changing of human beings for, of course, to help us in the event of some viral pandemic? No, 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 no. To help engineer humans so that they become allergic to meat because we need to find a way to stop eating meat because of that scarcity MacGuffin that you, you mentioned there. And so, well, we can we know that there are certain ways that we, we could genetically change people so that they become allergic to meat so they can't eat it anymore. Yay. What? Who? Who, 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 who's voting for this? What, what, what system did I subscribe to that you're going to start doing this to me? And do I get a say in this? Will I even know it's happening? Or will you just put it in one of the updates to whatever the, the you know, the, eventually, of course, it's just going to be a, a, a sort of general vaccine that you receive that will be a program from afar, uh, that they will be able to literally send signals to your body that will then just arrange the the uh, the uh, the mrna or whatever substance they inject you with to uh, to produce whatever protein they want at any time they want i hope people think that i sound like a crazy conspiracy theorist right now because in a few years when it comes comes to fruition i want you to think about the way you rejected what i am saying right now it is coming this is the future that they are trying to steep us in it and is. if we do not stare it in the face now before it happens and make that line in the sand. No, you will not do this to me. If we do not draw that line in the sand now, then we will be led step by step by step by step by step right into that transhuman nightmare. And, and the narrative that will be pushed is eventually they will reveal to you that you did put that binary biotech and that mRNA is that technology that's the next step to these injections. And I guarantee you, if you hardwire a device into your brain, it is going to be that much easier to subvert what makes you a human being, your spiritual being in the very first place. Now you talk about the fact that why should I trust these people and would they put this in? Why would you trust people that outwardly tell you that these things are created in about 15 years? They take about 15 years to produce, but we keep them for 40 plus 
in inventory. Why would they do that with technology that would empower human beings instead of control them? Again, this document is the document that continues to keep on giving. And you know, when you talk about um, what's going on today. And you talked about, for instance, BioNanotech. This is a RAND Corporation document published in uh, 2020. And just to show people on the books why you don't want to listen to the FDA or the CDC or any of these three-letter agencies, the FDA already openly, folks, openly has pumped hundreds of millions of dollars into invasive and non-invasive, we'll make it a little bigger for the audience, uh, tools to control your body and read your brain with EEF and magnetic waves. You think I'm kidding? I'm not. So let's just read this right here. A key effort in fueling most of these topics has been brain research through advancing innovative neurotechnologies initiative at the National Institute of Health. Remember the NIH, Francis Collins, Anthony Fauci, people we should really trust. This effort is broadly aimed at revolutionizing our understanding of the human brain. Brain partners include the National Science Foundation, trust that science, DARPA, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, and the uh, Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Agency, IARPA, as well as foundations, institutes, universities, and industries, very broad. The NIH, uh, NIH alone allocated $46 million in 2014 and $81 million. Uh, 0.4 in 2015, reflecting growing interest in the topic. Guys, that's ancient news. And that's just what they're telling you. DARPA has invested, quote unquote, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions, if not trillions in real world money over those last 50 plus years in the World War II um, into neuroscience and neurotechnology since the early 2000s alone. Now, when we talk about magnetic fields, uh, I, I just, it's almost unbelievable they would put it on paper, but they use, again, James just talked about this, EEG waves to read basic brain signals, transmit them over the internet, and then transfer motor responses to a second user using transcranial magnetic stimulation. Furthermore, later on, they can use magnetic uh, resonances to find out if a soldier might break psychologically, have psychotic tendencies, or identify falsehoods that suggest the ability to detect whether the subject is concealing information or may be a particular interest to counter-terrorism and counter-insurgency missions. Rand isn't fictitious. I didn't write this. This is essentially what you're discussing. They're talking about brain-computer interfaces 2040, we already have had them for decades, James. Do you think they start the human trials with the commercial stuff for Elon Musk? And you know what? I haven't. We haven't talked Musk at all. Give us your opinion on Elon Musk and why. I'm curious. Uh, well, actually, it's interesting to me that for some reason, I don't know why I didn't repost it or anything, but an article I wrote a few years ago on all hail uh, Musk's uh, Martian technocracy has just suddenly <laughs> sprung back into the rounds and was getting circulated on social media and talked about again. So I don't know why, but uh, long story short, no, Elon Musk is literally the grandson of a literal card-carrying technocrat from the original technocrat movement of the 1930s. So it is perhaps not surprising that he puts out tweets saying, you know, on the way, on the path towards Martian technocracy and all of this. Um, I think it's ridiculous to me that there is such a fanboy movement about Elon Musk, even within 
the so-called independent media? Really? <laughs> Elon Musk is a serial charlatan whose only projects that ever actually have come to fruition have done so completely and totally on the basis of government money and government input. So <laughs> SpaceX is nothing other than an arm of the U.S. military at this point, if it ever was anything different. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. People don't understand that's where the real money is. That's why they don't care about pumping money into electric cars that they didn't allow anybody else to use the capitalistic methods to put out to the public. Instead, they pick a guy like Musk who partners with Peter Thiel in uh, you know the next if if not the first leap into digital currency in the entire globe, PayPal. And they say, "You know what?" We like this guy. We're going to give him a SpaceX. He's going to be the next guy that's going to send us to the moon and Mars. Meanwhile, he's moving cargo on the rockets for the military within an hour anywhere. And Starlink is literally an open front for Blackjack, the DARPA space satellites that are going up. The same DARPA we're telling you doesn't have to tell you the truth. The same DARPA that partnered with Moderna back in 2013 to fight pandemics, whether they come of a natural origin or bioterra, it's right here. And it was sold as pandemics, folks. Let me see if that comes up. Well, hopefully that, that alone, but well, let's just read this right here. The goal is to develop uh, platform technologies that can be deployed safely and rapidly to provide US population with near immediate protection What's that sound like? Near immediate protection against emerging infectious diseases and engineered biological weapons, even in the cases when the pathogen or infection agent is unknown. This is, and not only that, do you have that? It's, it's, they took it off their site when I started uh, highlighting it. <laughs> you can't find that's in the web archive now. But who else were the partners in mRNA research? Oh, it's Bill and Melinda Gates. It's Merck. It's AstraZeneca. It's all the players. And then even Glenn Beck now is coming around talking about the 2015 partnership. And I think the problem there, and the one that we'll probably focus on, is that all the evidence shows that it wasn't just in the Chinese Wuhan lab, but in U.S. labs, even in these documents. And that's the part that's whispered, if spoken at all. So discuss exactly. that, because right now the narrative, and we discussed this, by the way, guys, all the way back in, I believe, March of 2020, when we said the possibility of bioweapons, or it may have been the August one, where China says it's a U.S. military bioweapon, the U.S. says it's a Chinese military bioweapon, and it sets up this nation-state battle. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly right. An incredibly important point to bring out, because I liken it to the 9-11 narrative where, that uh, Kevin Ryan called the Get Into Saudi Arabia Free Card, where he was talking about the 28 pages and the information that was excised from the, uh, the congressional investigation and other the 9-11 Commission report and other things that... Everyone knew was there. Everyone knew what the classified 28 pages was about in general, even before they actually released it. I mean, we all we all knew it was about Saudi involvement and Saudi connections to uh, the, the alleged hijackers in California and all of that. We already knew all of that. It's just that it was this thing that you were allowed to gesture at but not say until such time it was politically convenient and we wanted to, you know, the State Department wanted to wave a stick at Saudi Arabia. It's like, we could let people sue for 9-11, you know, that kind of thing. It's the get into Saudi Arabia free card that's just sitting there waiting to be used for the at the appropriate geopolitical time. 
fast forward to 2020, 2021, 2022, you know, Rand Paul, yay, sticking it to Fauci by talking about Wuhan and bringing it back to China. It's the Chinese, I tell you, it's a Chinese bioweapon. At the very least, it does point to the EcoHealth Alliance and uh, Fauci's uh, interests in that, which are incredibly well detailed in, of course, as you know, the real Anthony Fauci by uh, uh, Robert F. Kennedy. And, and now, James, there, there seems to even be an extension that Daszak may have been working with or for the CIA. Whether you believe that or not, it's definitely a possibility because one of the other things that we've always talked about is these are not nation-state networks. These are dark networks that are working on behalf of small cabals that use a compartmentalized structure that was learned in World War II. Absolutely. 100%. You could not be more right about that. That is the point that I still find even people who are willing to question all sorts of narratives will not question is this nation state idea that they have. And I understand because it has been so completely drilled into people from childhood on that the only division in the world that matters uh, fundamentally is this nation state division. And if somebody is American, then clearly they're working for America. And if somebody is Chinese, they are working for China. And the ability to see beyond that is uh, seems uh, to be missing from a lot of people. Um, I often point back, and I don't say, I, I, it sounds like I'm promoting him or something, but I'm not. I'm just saying it as a great admission against interest that people can use to point out to the real structure that's at play here without being called a conspiracy theorist, is to point to David Rothkopf's 2008 book, is it? Uh, on superclass, where he pointed out there are 6,000 people uh, who are not nation state actors, they're not government politicians, but they have the ability to uh, wield uh, influence and enact agendas across international boundaries. And these 6,000 people essentially are the real governors of the planet. He, uh, and of course, if you watch his, the interviews that he was giving and the speeches that he was giving around that time, he would always be careful to say, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and this is a conspiracy theory. It's not one of those crazy, you know, things you hear on the internet. But it's exactly what we're saying. Yes, there are these people who have the ability to influence agendas internationally, not for their nation state's interests, but for their cliques, their classes, their ideologies' interests. And that has nothing to do with whether your passport says you're an American citizen or Chinese or Canadian or anything else. It's about the allegiances that these people hold to the groups that they are involved with, like the one that you gestured to earlier, Bilderberg. Uh, that That's where the real interplay is happening, not at the nation state level. Absolutely. You know, this is something that has come up over the last year and we haven't talked about it. Um, signature reduction. You know, right now you have Merrick Garland. He's kind of outwardly talked about how not only are they going after anybody that could have been involved in the evils of January 6th, but that may have played another role. In other words, you didn't actually have to be there. We have the white terrorism, uh, domestic terrorism narratives. You could even go to the point when you had that uh, person drive into uh, the capital region and be killed. He ended up being a black extremist. Why? Because he was associated with Farrakhan. All their narratives um, have basically been covered by their bases of this domestic terror norm. And what people aren't talking about is that it's gone beyond the Patriot Act. 
It's gone beyond the National Use Authorization Act. It's gone beyond Homeland Security and into those fusion centers we talked about all those times ago into an art form called signature reduction, where this paragraph to me tells me that my military uh, no longer works for me and has already violated posi comitatus. The largest undercover force the world has ever known is the one created by the Pentagon over the past decade. Some 60,000 people now belong to the secret army, many working under masked identities and in low profile, all part of a broad program known as signature reduction. The force, more than 10 times the size of the clandestine elements of the CIA, carries out domestic and foreign assignments, both in military uniform and under civilian cover, in real life and online, sometimes hiding in private businesses and consultancies, some of them household names and companies. You know, we just talked about that Trojan horse civilian system. One of the tools um, that's shown on here, aside from one of the people they take you with, he's got a car that isn't his, license plates that aren't his, identities that aren't his, people that can put him in digital databases he doesn't belong to under these identities. But stunningly, you know, we talk about the technologies that they procure and hold back. That isn't a hand. That is a skin-tight glove hand that anybody's biometric uh, information can be printed to and also emit what they call human oil. Now, I want people to really think about that. How many of you have volunteered your DNA, whether you know it or not, via 23andMe or maybe some other program you weren't even aware of, and that gets databased? How hard would it be to frame someone when you literally had their biological data and fingerprints? And that's in the hands of the Defense Department that couldn't find, for instance, the pipe bomber of January 5th, James, what are your thoughts on programs like Signature Reduction and the high-class tools, not only that they have, but then that they are unaccountable for using after the fact? I'll go you one step further because anyone that was born in a Western uh, nation in the last 50 years in a hospital absolutely does have their DNA uh, stored with the government. And the government not only... or or the third-party private companies that they have entrusted this to claim the right of ownership over those blood samples that are taken from every baby at birth and, and stored. And they have even used them in scientific experiments that they did not, they didn't require consent, they didn't ask anyone, they just use them for genetic population testing and other such things. That already exists. So yeah, your, your DNA is probably already stored in ways that you don't know about. And yeah, we're moving into the nanobio grid where who knows the craziness of what, I mean, keep in mind what you're pointing to there is in a Newsweek article. Can you imagine the things we don't know about? Because well, they're even not in the Newsweek them. article, right? So yeah, let's let's talk about it. They have 1,800 documents and that came in out, out in May. None of the documents are available. Obviously, it's whoever filed the FOIA. They haven't put them online. Some reporters are doing that these days, and I would encourage more of them, too, because I want the raw data. Um, that was a portion, a small portion of what they could actually get and were requested. Signature reduction was referred to as an art form. It was admitted there had been no hearings or oversight whatsoever in that. That should be illegal out of the gates. And like you said, that's out there, so... At some level, they want you to know at least a little piece of it. Because when you really get to the classified stuff, and we keep going back to World War II, because 
Look, there was a reason we got warned about this by Eisenhower, someone who saw the whole progression and was at the uppermost levels and realized, wow, what we've built is really, really dangerous. Well, as of 2013, I don't know if there have been any dumps, but again, Annie Jacobson with her seminal work, Operation Paperclip, states again and again that over 600 million documents, not pages of documents, 600 million were still classified in regards to Paperclip. That is now a program that took place, James, 70 plus years ago. What kind of transparency are we seeing in this post-truth world where Big Pharma, which is even a, a derivation of post-World War II and Dow and all those companies via the Nazis, are now openly requesting 75 years of transparency after injecting people with bio nanotechnology. Not transparency. <laughs> 75 years until transparency. Yeah, exactly. I was in fact just going to bring that up because that's exactly the parallel. Or we could look at the JFK assassination records that continue to be delayed. I thought Trump was going to reveal them all to the world. Wasn't Twice. Oh, wait. Twice. Twice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, James, um, you, you've been going an hour, and I always love these conversations. We, again, we got to do it more often. But you, I, listen, you're in high demand. You're constantly putting together projects. Um, your documentaries range anywhere from, you know, the 10 to 15-minute wrap-ups to two-plus-hour trilogy pieces um, that, again, are highly, highly studied, you know, very well-sourced, very well-referenced. This is a guy that doesn't just step into the arena and put one of these things out without thinking about what material and why. And, you know, even going back when we were talking about COVID, you pointed to somebody's documentary that kind of led you along this path. But at the end, he talks about, well, you got to understand, I chose these stories and you could easily choose something else to point out a different narrative. Kind of brings it full circle to the post-truth world. You know, let people know why you think, and obviously I think, uh, that your documentaries are some of the most well put together and at least honestly studied narratives out there that people, again, are encouraged to go check out the source information. Well, I appreciate that very much. And like recognizes like, and I know you as a content creator and someone who has obviously made some documentaries yourself can appreciate what goes into the creation of that. But just as an example, with my recent or ongoing, actually, Al-Qaeda documentary series that's up right now, free viewing, free reading, free listening at CorbettReport.com slash Al-Qaeda. Uh, so far, the first two parts, now something about three and a half hours, something like that. There's a third part on the way. Um, but in the preparation for that, as you can imagine, I mean, I've read dozens of books and it gets to the point where you're trying to summarize an entire book within the span of a, maybe a paragraph of text. And it's just, it's insanity. Like how I can't, I can't take all this information and put it down, but you got to try. And I hope at the very least, something that you just pointed out there that's extremely important is that like with Newsweek or whoever else, okay, great. You made this little report but release the documents that you made the report from. That is the thing that we can very easily be doing in this digital internet age. Isn't this what this is about? Sharing of information at the touch of a button. And that's been a core ethos of my work all 
along since the beginning and continues to be in that Al-Qaeda documentary, you will see hundreds and hundreds of links to references so you can see where I got the data. And as I say, yeah, if you take this story and put it over here and put this in a different place, you'll come out with a different narrative. So don't trust my narrative. Go and look at the sources that I'm using and come up with whatever you think corresponds to your own personal experience and, and your own sense of what is right. Anyway, that's the core ethos of the Corbett Report and what I do. And that's why I always put links to everything that I'm talking about so people can come to their own conclusions. Because unlike the corporate media and the, the would-be controllers and the Bilderbergers and everyone else, I trust that you are a sovereign, independent human being who can come to your own conclusions based on the data that you have that hey, you know things that I don't know, and I know things that you don't know, and and there's lots of information out there, and there's a, some things that neither of us know. So let's just have the conversation. Let's put the data out there. Let's cite our sources, and we'll come to a better understanding. And I think that's what we've been doing for the past, well, I, I've been at this for 15 years. You've been at it for even longer. Uh, yeah. um, we, we are trying to do that, and we're furthering this conversation. We are learning our way forward, as Richard Grove often says, and uh, you know, it's a slow and not always uh, easy process, but we are getting there. And I appreciate the work that you're doing to help spread this information. Well, I appreciate that, too. And I think that's how you be really structurally honest in your own life by admitting that this isn't team baseball, that your side isn't always going to be right or that you don't really have a side at all except for being a human being and hopefully you know, trying to love one another and do the right thing. At the end of the day, are you really a conservative? Are you really a liberal? Are you really a Republican or a Democrat? The one thing that we honestly all have in common, whether we disagree on everything and even hate each other's guts, is the humanity that we're going to have to fight tooth and nail to hold on to. And not everybody's going to hold on to that humanity. That's a guarantee. And we're going to see that revving up and coming in full force. So that's a big reminder. James Corbett of the Corbett Report. My friend, I'll be reaching out hopefully in the next few months on top of it. Uh, I'm going to send you links to that document and the full Bushnell speech because I think you're going to find it really interesting. Guy's still in power. And again, these are blueprints for things that we are seeing evolve in real time. Thank you so much for joining me all across the way from Japan, my friend. I appreciate it anytime, Jason. Thanks uh, for having me on. All right. Thank you so much, guys. That's the GOAT. There he is. It's always great um, to really have James Corbett on the program because he is articulate. He does cover issues that matter. He is funny. He's out there with his friends making music as well in uh, Japan through all this. Uh, he has a good sense of humor about this. He's a family man. There's a lot of things about James Corbett I like, and I hope that you guys like him as well. Uh, hopefully you guys love this broadcast. It was a Rockfin exclusive, so if you are just one of the uh, free viewers, consider becoming a premium subscriber. I'll be throwing up some uh, throwbacks maybe within the next couple of days out here as well. But at least with the freebie, a ton of stuff you're not going to see on YouTube. I'll probably cut out 10 minutes of this interview with James, throw it on YouTube, and bring people in. I uh, also did a really fun broadcast today where you, the audience, was able to upload a video and uh, make a question or a comment. We went almost an hour on that video. I think uh, did four, five, maybe six uh, different questions and comments. But we want to make that a feature of Rockfin because Rockfin is empowering me through allowing me free speech 
uh, by being able to talk about anything I want to talk about with James Corbett. Can't do that on YouTube. Wants to enslave us through narrative control. Another great way to support is the uh, GoFundMe down below. If you're not subscribed on YouTube for a reason, hey, we want to stay there. We want to stay on the Trojan horse civilian system. But most of all, we want you to get this information out to others. And we want you to be part of the solution to this problem and become the great resistance to this very real Great Reset Agenda. I love you guys, and I'll see you on the flip side.